in the Bible this morning, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, please. And I speak to you on the subject, the source of our liberty. Where did the idea of human liberty and freedom come from? And we find the answer in the book of Exodus, chapter number 20. Would you stand to your feet with me one more time, please, as we open the Word of God? And in Exodus, chapter 20, and verse 1. And God spake these words. Now, so much of the Bible is what God said to someone. But these are the direct words of God as he spoke. God spake these words, saying... I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods <clears throat> before me. Number two, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Verse 12, honor thy father and thy mother. Verse 13, thou shalt not kill. Verse 14, thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Verse 16, thou shalt not bear false witness. And verse 17, thou shalt not covet. The Ten Commandments, sometimes called the Decalogue, Latin for ten. The Ten Commandments of God. You may be seated. I believe those Ten Commandments are the source of our liberty. And let me explain. Exodus chapter 20 records the story of a series of conferences. Now, if you read the whole book of Exodus, you'll see that over and over, Moses comes down from the mountain, goes back up on the mountain numerous times. Each time, God meets with him. And so, we have a series of conferences. These were held about 3,400 years ago when this happened. It's on the top of Mount Sinai, one of the bleakest, most desolate places on planet Earth. And as I said, there were only two attendees at that conference. It wasn't a big crowd. Almighty God and his prophet Moses. In that conference, in that series of conferences, God revealed to Moses his will for human behavior. Now, we call this today God's revealed law because God has two kinds of law, and I want, I want you to really get hold of this. God has revealed his will for us in two ways. One, his revealed law, which is the record of the Scripture, the Bible. And here we find God's standards of right and wrong we find it repeated, and in many other ways, but here's a little succinct summarization of God's will for every human being. This is the basis of morality in any culture. This is the way to live a righteous life. 
We call them the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are universal. God's revealed word is universal, meaning it applies to everyone in every culture, everywhere in the universe. It means that this is so universal that in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul said that it was universal. The law of God is not only written on pages and in uh, in the ancient days on scrolls and today in our Bible, a book, but the revealed will of God, not only written on pages with ink and pens, it was written in our hearts. Imagine that. What it means is that God has put within each of us a conscience. And even a person who has never heard the word of God taught or preached or read, that person can know the will of God because their conscience will tell them this is written in their hearts, as the scripture said. And so the pagan man somewhere who's never heard of Christianity at all, but he pretty well knows it's wrong to steal, He knows it's wrong to kill. He knows it's wrong to commit adultery with his neighbor's wife. God has written those very basic laws of morality upon the very heart of mankind. Not only is his revealed law eternal or universal, but it's also eternal, meaning it's timeless. It never changes. It is always relevant. It always applies. It cannot be abolished. It cannot be uh, abrogated in any way. It cannot be repealed by some Congress or some government somewhere. It can be neglected. God knows we're neglecting it today. It can be ignored, as so many do, as the majority of the masses of humanity do. They ignore the the will of God there. But no matter what we do, it can never be destroyed. It will always live. It is universal. It applies to everybody, everywhere, all the time, and it is eternal and timeless. You've no doubt seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. It's an old movie, but it's a classic and very good movie in most respects. The director was a man named Cecil B. DeMille, and he spent his life up to that point in time. He was fascinated with the Ten Commandments, and he became something of an authority. He studied the, comm- the commandments personally over and over and over to have a deep understanding of it in order to be able to uh, someday produce the movie. And someone asked him one time about people breaking the Ten Commandments, and his answer is a classic. Cecil B. DeMille said, nobody breaks the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments break us. In fact, he says the Ten Commandments will smash the man or the woman who ignore the truth of them. Certainly, we've seen that to be true, haven't we? Now, but God has another way of revealing himself. There's another law of God other than the Ten Commandments in the Bible, the written word of God, and that is God has what we call natural law. The laws that govern the universe that are discovered by scientific inquiry. And so these laws are like the other laws. They're universal and they're eternal. They never change. Water boils at a certain temperature. 
And uh, gravity always pulls things back to the earth. And there are tens of thousands of these. And the back, back before even Christianity began, a Roman philosopher named Cicero said that God created natural law, natural law, and that we can know God by simply studying the universe and studying and learning his natural law. Well, John Locke was a famous English philosopher, and he picked that up and he wrote a lot about natural law. And some of the other French philosophers and so on wrote and described natural law. This concept fascinated these people at that point in history back in the 16 and 1700s. And guess what? When our founders sat down to write the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, if you'll go and read some in the Federalist Papers and some of their documentation, they constantly refer to who? Cicero, John Locke. These were some of the sources that they used, and they talked a lot about nature and nature's God. In other words, they were very aware not only of the revealed will of God written in Scripture, but God's natural law, the laws that govern the universe and behavior, whether we even recognize those laws or not. Paul knew about natural law, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. Paul is describing the differences between the genders. Today, the liberals would say gender distinctions. They have all this new vocabulary they use, you know. And Paul talked about gender distinction. He says, does not even nature tell you? In other words, nature itself is the teacher that we can learn from those of us who believe in the Lord. And you know what? Violations of God's laws of nature are just as doomed to failure as are the violations of God's revealed law. For example, today, we've had in America an unprecedented thing for Western nations up until the last few years. We've accepted homosexuality as a, an alternate lifestyle, equal with, with heterosexuality. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26, Paul addresses that sin, and he says it's a sin because he says the women change the natural use of sexuality. They change it into something against nature. They change the natural use of their bodies. In other words, homosexuality is against nature. The Bible says that. That's not my prejudice speaking. And then Again, down I think in verse number 28, he says, it's against nature. He uses that term. Blackstone, the great English jurist said, quote, upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation depends all human law. So when I tell you that 3,400 years ago, there was a conference held on top of Mount Sinai God came and met with a prophet named Moses and gave him the law over a period of several months, multiple conferences, but that the law was summarized in 10 statements, 10 standards that he gave for all of time and for every single human being 
that other men studied that and understood this is the basis for law. And so point number one today, if you're taking notes with me, God's law is the source of all legitimate law. God's law is the source of all legitimate laws that men have ever made. It's hard to even think of something that doesn't come under the, under the heading of those laws. And so in Matthew chapter 22, we have an account of a young lawyer who comes to Jesus. He said to Jesus, Master, which is the greatest of the laws? And Jesus said unto him, first of all, Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And Jesus quoted the law of Moses. That's a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which really is a summary of the first and second and uh, several of the, uh, the commandments there, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus summarized it and said, we're to love God supremely. We're to love him above everyone and everything on the earth. And then he didn't stop. He said, in the second is likened to it, or of the same value. The second is, love your neighbor as you do yourself. And he quoted from Leviticus chapter 19, where you will find that in Leviticus chapter number 19, uh, it says clearly that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And then Jesus said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. What do you mean by that strange term, hang all the law and the prophets? He meant that if you love God with all your heart, and he is supreme in your life, and if you love your neighbor as you do yourself, you don't have to even know the rest of the law. You live according to those two principles in your life, and guess what? You won't break any of the other of God's laws. That that absolutely encapsulates and summarizes the duty of man before Almighty God during our lifetimes here on the earth. And listen to me now. Where God is known and where God is loved and where God is worshiped any time in history on this planet, when God is known, God is loved and God is worshiped, there will be freedom and there will be liberty in every case. And here's the other side, the converse. Unless people love or fear something bigger and greater than themselves, there's absolutely nothing to restrain their evil. When we no longer know and love and worship God, and when we devalue the truth of his word, when God no longer occupies first place in our heart, our soul, and our mind, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing to restrain the evil heart of mankind, and we see multiple instances of that throughout history. And so obedience to God's law produces human freedom and liberty. I hope you get that. When people live by the revealed law of God in the Bible and the natural law that nature itself teaches us, there will be freedom. They won't infringe on the rights of other people. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. We won't invade another country's territory. We won't live immoral lives. We won't even covet a condition of the heart and desire. 
God's law is the source of all legitimate law and the source of freedom and liberty in this world. Our founders knew that. And so our founders, number two, created a nation of laws. It's such an important thing because in re- we're seeing a breakdown of that among the, the legislators, and we're seeing it broken down by the executives, the presidents, and so on, where they ignore the law. Somebody says, well, the law said, and they sign an order and go and do it anyhow. And we're seeing a spirit of lawlessness pervade in the country. The founders set the country up like this, that there was not going to be in charge of this nation some man, there was not going to be some legislature or some Congress. I hear people say, well, isn't the Supreme Court the supreme law of the land? Absolutely not. We're in the trouble that we're in because those nine black-robed turkeys up there that sit on that court, they're the ones that said abortion is legal and right. They're the ones who took prayer out of our schools. They are the one who said you can't read a Bible in a public school. The people never voted on that. The final and high authority is not nine men wearing black robes who are just like you and me, just human beings. The supreme law of the land is the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence that our founding fathers wrote, and that never changes or is not supposed to. On July the 4th, 1776, our very first official document, the Declaration of Independence, was written. If you want proof and evidence that the founders had a biblical worldview, all you have to do is pick up the Declaration of Independence. That's why I want to see one in every home here and pray God that you'll read it sometime. Do you know, I read this week that the majority of people in America have given the same test that you have to pass for citizenship? The majority of the citizens of this country can't pass the test if they had to apply for citizenship. And at least half of them have never read the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. The evidence that our founders believed in the revealed law and the natural law of God is right here in the first pages of the Declaration. They believed in God. Read the Declaration, the preamble to it, five times, five times it refers to God. Nature is God, the supreme judge of the universe, and so on. They not only believed in God, they believed he was the creator. They were not evolutionists. Over and over, they talk about the creator. We are endowed by our creator, not by evolutionary theory. They not only believed in God and that he was the creator, they believed that we bore man's image. And so they understood that man has higher powers than the other beasts. They understood that man has reason and man has a conscience. And they understood that from those two things, we were superior to every other living being that God placed upon the earth. They recognized, by the way, the sinfulness of man in the fall. They recognized human nature for what it really is. They recognized that man is a mixture of good and bad, and that man was inherently 
sinful and evil. And they believed that God had two things to restrain man from his evil. They believed these two restraints were number one, the church. And the role of the church was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach the Ten Commandments, the gospel, the New Testament, the Word of God, and that if people knew and understood the Word of God, it would restrain their sinful impulses. They secondly believed that government was God-given according to Romans chapter 13, and the role of the government was to make laws consistent with the law of God, and then to enforce those laws that would in fact protect our life and our liberties as people. They believed that God had given us certain inalienable rights. I never think about the founding of the country and prepare a sermon on an occasion like today, but what I get fascinated with that concept of inalienable rights, not just rights. What does inalienable mean? It means, according to Blackstone, again, I quote the great English jurist, these rights are inherent. These rights are God-given and cannot be taken away, inalienable. No legislature has the power to abridge or to destroy them unless the owner himself shall commit some act that amounts to a forfeiture of these rights. Anyone who seeks to take away these rights, said Blackstone, is subject to God's justice. And then they specifically named three of those inalienable rights, and you're familiar with that. Life, the right to life. That's why I don't go three weeks and not talk about the sin of abortion because of all the things that is happening in America today. I believe that's the greatest sin. To murder a child in, its womb, in the mother's womb has to be the most dark sin of all. The right to life, because when you take away the right to life, you take away every other right. The rest of it's inconsequential, is it not? What is a right to vote if you don't have life? What is a right, well, you, any right you can think of is abrogated and destroyed when you destroy one's life. That's why God elevated murder to such a high position of punishment, because it's taking away every other right in a person's life. Inalienable rights, life. And the second was liberty. And so slavery and oppression are always viewed negatively in the Bible. I hear people very ignorantly make statements like, well, the Bible condones slavery. No, it doesn't. It recognizes that slavery was a part of the human condition at that time in the world, that most slaves in those days came about as a result of wars where they were captured. But regardless of what type of slavery it was, it always speaks about liberty, and it, speaks, it always condemns oppression of any kind of human, uh, destruction of human rights and so on. I know the founders. Some of them were slave owners themselves. But I know that they began to work on that evil and that it took a war and 75 years before it was turned over, but thank God we don't have it today in America. Amen. 
And they said another inalienable right, a right that cannot be taken away, that God gave to us. No legislature, no one else gave it to us, was the pursuit of happiness. If you read about their deliberations, what they, they almost wrote there, the right to property. And then narrowly they defeated that idea and they expressed it as the pursuit of happiness. But you, you can't be very happy if you don't have anything at all, if you're absolutely a pauper, can you? And so it meant freedom, the, the, the pursuit of happiness meant the right to use our time and to use our resources in the way that we want to use them. That no government is going to tell you you can spend your money on this, though that now they do. No government can tell me how to spend my time or whether I can go here or there. Basic liberties, life, liberty, the pursuit of, it, of happiness. Inalienable, given to me by God, a natural right that the Word of God attests to in its written form and that nature itself teaches me that nobody ought to be my slave master. Thirteen years later, we miss this often. They wrote that Declaration of Independence. And then they governed the country for 13 years under something called the Articles of Confederation. Thirteen years later, finally, they got together all that time they were debating all these major issues of the time, slavery and so on. It took them 13 years before they came up with the Constitution, and it became the supreme law of the land. Not a panel of judges, not a dictator president, not a Congress, a document, a document whose roots went all the way back to a mountaintop conference at Sinai 3,400 years previous. And the Constitution became the supreme law of the land. Written over 100 days in Philadelphia, it was signed by the men who wrote it in September 1787, after about three and a half months of deliberation. It was taken back to the states and read and disseminated and put in the newspapers and ratified in the states in June of 1788, a year later. And we didn't begin operating under it until March of 1789. That would have been 13 years after the Declaration of Independence was signed. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 33. If you read the Constitution and I hope that you will sometime, maybe this weekend, you will notice something about it. The first part of it deals with what we call the separation of powers. Because our founding fathers so wanted liberty and freedom, they did not want a dictator, they did not want a king, they didn't want a legislature to rule over us. And so they took the powers. They knew we needed a leader, a focal point, a president or whatever. But they divided his office from the legislature who would make the laws and then from the courts who would interpret the laws. And the idea of a separation of powers, that the legislature doesn't rule the president, the president doesn't rule the court, the court doesn't rule over the other two branches, that separate separate and equal powers 
Where'd they get that idea? Straight out of Scripture. Look with me, if you will, Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22. The Lord is our judge. There's the judiciary. The Lord is our lawgiver. There's the legislature, the Congress, the Senate. The Lord is our king. He's the president. But none of them will save us. None of them will save us. He will save us. Isn't it amazing? When I hear these progressives and liberals on television, they're talking about, oh, these founders were all deists. They were all unbelievers. And yet I open up my constitution, my declaration of independence, and I begin to see that it's the foundation of these documents is based upon God's revealed word and God's natural law that he gave many years ago. And after they got through writing, if you'll notice the way this thing is written, the Constitution is written, it talks about the court, talks about the president, talks about the Congress. And they come down and they, had, they started quibbling and fussing up there in Philadelphia during those days. Because they said, we've got to go back and protect these rights, our liberties. And so they went back again, and they began to add amendments to the Constitution. And they added the First Amendment. And the very first of the first, the very first right mentioned in the First Amendment, the first of the firsts, was what? Freedom of religion. Because they knew if you took away that right, you had destroyed the foundation on which this whole house had been built. And then they also in that First Amendment, the freedom of speech. The freedom and right to express freely our ideas. To criticize the government. To say hard things against the government if you wished. And through our history, people have. And then there was the freedom of the press. The press was to be the watchdog. Very frankly, today, the press is not the watchdog over the government. It's the handmaiden of one of the parties. Everything it says is directed politically to give power to the, other, to, to the party that sponsors it, if you will. And there was another right. That was the right to peaceably assemble, as we're doing here today. You can't assemble if you're talking about having a riot. You shouldn't be able to. But if you're meeting for peaceful purposes, you have that right, and the government is not to stop it. Over and over they try to stop it. We tried to have a rally down on the courthouse steps here all 20, 30 years ago for a specific issue, and it took an act of con. I mean, we had to fight and fight and fight to get a permit to go down there and meet. You shouldn't have to do that. We weren't, we weren't carrying rifles or pitchforks either. We were going there to peaceably assemble. And that's a, that is a First Amendment right. Then the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. Boy, how that's under attack today. What did the founders have in mind? They had in mind that, look, if everything gets so bad in this country and we have some tyrant running, ruining our lives, 
that people will have a weapon to defend themselves. By the way, it wasn't about criminals, it was about the government. And then other amendments were added. Search and seizure was to be reasonable and protected by law. Due process, that if you were accused of something, you had a right to a trial. You had a right to defend yourself. And then slavery, 1865, 70-some years later, after the Constitution was in fact in, in effect, they made slavery a crime and illegal. Here's what I want you to get. Both the Declaration and the Constitution reflect the heart and the laws and the mind of God. That's why I prayed this morning and said, thank you, Lord, for 241 years. Do you know how long that is? as longer than any other republic has existed in all of human history that gave freedom to its subjects. Because it started outright. Now, one final thought. Don't confuse what I've said about the country, America. What I, I've, I've held up and glorified and honored the Ten Commandments. Don't take that to mean, though, that that's your way of salvation. The spiritual purpose of God's law, the national purpose was the country founded itself upon these laws, honor God, love one another, and uh, you'll have freedom. But now today, spiritually, individually, and personally, I want you to turn to the book of Romans with me. I think you can find the book of Romans in this church. And turn over the book of Romans to chapter number 3. And I want you to see something, and I want you to mark it if it's not marked in your Bible. Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. Paul's concluding one of the great sections of Romans. Therefore, we conclude, the conclusion of all this that he's been saying, we conclude, a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the, say it, law. We're justified before God, declared to be righteous without the law. When God and Moses had that conference up on Mount Sinai and God gave Moses the law, the Ten Commandments, he was not giving a plan of salvation. That's what I want you to really clearly understand. This was not a means of approaching God for salvation. It was never given for salvation. In the book of Galatians, chapter 2 and verse number 16, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Think of that. You cannot be justified by keeping the law. And the reason for it is you can't keep the law. Nobody's ever kept it perfectly except one, our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us have broken it in some word, word, thought, or deed, however, but it's been broken by us. So what was the purpose of the law for you and me today spiritually? It is our schoolmaster, the Bible says, which means a schoolmaster, a schoolteacher, 
is one who trains and teaches and imparts knowledge and wisdom. The law is the one who teaches and trains and imparts wisdom. It teaches us of the character of God. It teaches us of the sinfulness of our own hearts that we can't save ourselves. The law was given not to save us, but to show us our need of Jesus Christ and his grace in our life. So the law was never given for salvation. The law is our schoolmaster, God's standard to show us our need of grace. And the law never had the power to save us. It never did. People go back to the Old Testament and they see the Jews living there. They say, well, weren't the Jews saved by keeping the law? No, they weren't. The Jews were saved by offering the blood of a lamb as a substitute according to the directions given by the priest of their day. And the lamb represented Jesus Christ and it represented them looking forward to the coming of the cross rather than looking backward to the cross as we do. And so the Jew was under the law to show him his need of a savior. And though the savior had not come, he offered the little lamb as the sacrifice for his sins. Listen to this verse. And it's very clear. And some of you may be depending on the wrong thing for your salvation. The Bible says it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Not the keeping of the law, but without the shedding of blood. And so we look back today, since the time of Christ, we look back today to the cross. And we know that on the cross, our Savior died and shed his blood and as unworthy as I and you are, that we are saved because Jesus went to the cross and poured out his blood for sinners. And I qualify, I'm a sinner. And Jesus died for me and he died for you. And so today, I'm blessed. I'm a citizen of the United States by right of birth. And I have freedom and liberty. Praise God. And I am a citizen of heaven by right of birth. I've been born again by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I am blessed. Are you blessed? Amen. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, at this time. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.